Okay, uh, Dr. Sugarman is our next speaker. He spoke yesterday on pediatric dermatology. Dr. Sugarman practices pediatric dermatology in Northern California. He is assistant clinical professor at UCSF, and he is speaking to us today on childhood lumps and bumps, how to approach congenital lesions in pediatric dermatology. Please help, him, help me in welcoming Dr. Sugarman. So we're going to spend the next hour or so talking about lumps and bumps. Um, so if I can figure out how to work this pointer here. So just as an overview, um, I'm going to spend uh, the first part and the last part of the talk uh, talking about midline developmental or congenital lesions and, and how to approach those. Um, I'm going to uh, talk about epidermal nevi and nevus sebaceous as well as some other yellow-looking bumps. Um, we're going to spend a little time on embryology. When I was a medical student, I, I hated embryology. It just seemed so boring. Um, but I, I love embryology now, and I, I think it's because I have something to apply it to. And, and hopefully, by the end of the hour, you'll, you'll sort of see the importance of, of uh, embryology and location in terms of understanding when to worry about a congenital lesion. And then I'm going to finish with a little allegory. Uh, we're going to just talk a little bit about the god Pan and uh, uh, give you guys a, a little bit of a new twist on that ancient myth. So uh, the first case is a scalp lesion uh, noted on just a routine examination um, and by the pediatrician. Uh, they're referred to your office. Uh, basically, the family wants to know what it is and what might be its significance. So uh, as many of you probably know, this is scalp aplasia cutis. Um, the scalp is a very common location for aplasia cutis. Uh, it's a solitary lesion usually, and usually not associated with any underlying abnormalities. Truncal aplasia cutis uh, can more often be associated with chromosomal abnormalities. Uh, there's a variant of aplasia cutis that's called membranous aplasia cutis. And um, essentially, you get this little bubble, a thin parchment-like membrane that uh, covers the aplasia cutis. And uh, when this heals in, often it'll leave a hypertrophic scar. So if you see that patient Later, so at age nine months or so, you'll see a hypertrophic scar. It probably was uh, a membranous aplasia cutis during the newborn period and just has healed with hypertrophic scarring. Um, so that, that's a variant to, to be aware of. Often if you'll uh, kind of stick your finger in these, sometimes you can feel a bony defect as well. Um, and uh, that usually heals in and is, is, is of no consequence. So here's another lesion of aplasia cutis, um, noted on a routine newborn exam. And um, again, we're, we're asked the question, well, what might be its significance? Now, this lesion of aplasia cutis is different from the last one I just showed you. And um, let's just put them side by side. Just look carefully at these images and, and think to yourself, what might be the difference between the two lesions of aplasia cutis? If you think you know, just raise your hand. I'm not going to call on anybody. We have a few people. 
They're both on the midline. So this is a subtle difference sometimes, but a really important uh, physical observation to make. And this is called aplasia cutis with a hair collar sign. So now when you look at this, uh, there's a very subtle rim of darker hair around the aplasia cutis that you can see here. It's thicker and darker than the surrounding hair. And it suggests uh, occult cranial dysraphism, especially if there's a vascular stain around the aplasia cutis. And it's associated with encephalocele, meningocele, and atretic encephalocele and meningocele. These are diagnoses that you don't want to miss. So here's some more examples of aplasia cutis with a hair collar sign. Uh, this one, much thicker and more obvious than the last one. Same with this one. This is the triple threat. This is the vascular stain, the aplasia cutis, and the hair collar. Sorry, we've got two screens going, but you can see that there's a vascular stain, aplasia cutis in the center, and a hair collar. So uh, until you've been introduced to this, you, you might not really think much about extra hair growing there, but if you have a, a midline lesion of aplasia cutis with a hair collar, I would definitely worry about that. And um, what you worry about is dysraphism. So what is dysraphism? It's incomplete closure or defective fusion of the neural tube. And you can have neural tissue that can protrude from that opening. Sometimes that open channel only affects bone or skin. So that's aplasia cutis, congenita without any underlying associations. And sometimes that defect or open channel can go all the way uh, to the meninges or to the brain itself. There's heterogeneity. If, if the dysraphism only involves the meninges, it's called a meningocele. If it involves the brain, it's called an encephalocele. Or a spinal cord would be called a myelocele. You can have a combination of meninges and brain or spinal cord, the so-called meningocephalocele or meningomyelocele. It can be atretic, so the stalk can be partially regressed. Or it can be the stalk completely be obliterated, and then you have just a heterotopic neuronodule that has no connection to the underlying brain at all. So a little embryology, how does the neural tube close? Well, the neural folds will elevate and converge toward the midline and eventually meet to form a closed neural tube. Um, and the cutaneous ectoderm will separate from the neuroectoderm. That's a process that's called disjunction. And sometimes that doesn't happen correctly. So here's just a little cart another cartoon of uh, surface ectoderm and neuroectoderm. And traditionally, when the neural tube closes, we th we've thought about it like a, a zipper, just zipping up from uh, rostral to caudal. And we now know that the neural tube really doesn't close quite that way. It, neuralation occurs in several ways of closure. Um, and that leaves several hot spots behind. So uh, this, oops, this little guy we're going to come back to over and over, but he's our little cartoon of where the neural tube closes. So there's a zipper here. So there's one hot spot. If the neural tube doesn't close completely, you can have an opening there. Uh, the second little hot spot, you so see you've got a zipper there at between two and four. That's the vertex scalp. This is the root of the nose. Um, another hot spot is the lumbosacral spine. 
and then also at the uh, base of the neck. So we've got four hot spots, each corresponding to this wave of neurulation that occurs during neural, neural tube closure. So how are we going to work this up? This lesion is right at the, the hot spot between number two and number four on our little cartoon here. And we've got a plagia cutis with the hair collar sign, so we know that we need to worry. So we're going to do an MRI, and in this little baby, the MRI showed an encephalocele, and he went to neurosurgery for correction. So let's look at another case now. This is a two-month-old, and parents noticed a swelling over the lateral eyebrow. Initially thought it was from minor trauma, but it didn't go away. So what's this diagnosis, and what's its significance? Here's another really cute baby with the same thing over the lateral brow. And these are dermoids, um, as many of you probably recognized. And uh, they are a result of sequestration of ectodermal tissue along embryonic fusion lines. They're not on the midline, so we don't really worry about uh, any underlying neural tube defects. They're solitary in general. They're firm, non-tender, non-compressible. Uh, the common areas are the lateral brow uh, and the upper nose and forehead. Here's one that's on the root of the nose. It's a little subtle and hard to see, but there's a slight swelling there. Um, and uh, that's, if you remember, uh, one of our hot spots from our little guy that we showed. And uh, do dermoid cysts have a CNS connection? Well, it really depends on where they are. So for the nasal midline lesions, 25% of them have an intracranial connection. And so you need to worry about those. Um, and if you just look at that location um, of our swelling there, um, so we have a dermoid there that's right at, at number, between number three and number two, one of our hot spots for neural tube closure. So do you have to image this patient, lateral brow? No because we know there's no chance of intracranial connection there. Um, do you need to image this patient? Well, hopefully everybody would say yes to that. Um, that's exactly where uh, that dermoid cyst was in our last patient. Um, this is um, a cephalocele versus nasal glioma. Hard to tell the difference sometimes. They're essentially very similar things. The nasal glioma just has lost its intracranial connection, so it's a heterotopic neural nodule. Um, the cephalocele can transilluminate if there's fluid in there. So if there's CSF in there, it'll transilluminate. This one did, um, and it was a cephalocele. Obviously, um, this goes to neurosurgery as well. Here's another little baby with a little pit um, right there in the same location. Uh, Imaging shows an intracranial connection. Again, our little guy shows us this is right at that hot spot between number two and number three. So a relatively innocuous, oops, innocuous looking uh, little pit here turned out to be a sinus that had an intracranial connection. So even if it doesn't look like much, the location is key. So if it's in the right location or for, for this baby in the wrong location, uh, you need to worry about this, get imaging, and then refer if necessary. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit. I'm going to come back to congenital lesions in a minute. I'm just going to talk about uh, epidermal nevi. Um, 
This is a typical keratinocytic epidermal nevus that one might see, sort of seborrheic, keratosis-like, uh, brown uh, papules that follow the lines of Blaschko. Um, epidermal nevi are hamartomas of, of epidermal and adnexal elements. And they often show a mixture of malformed structures but we generally classify them according to the predominant component. So what we just looked at was the keratinocytic epidermal nevus. So, because it was primarily an, on pathology and, and clinically you could tell this had epidermal components as opposed to uh, nevus sebaceous, which is one of the epidermal nevi, but they generally have, even though they have uh, papillomatous epidermal hyperplasia, they have uh, mostly malformed sebaceous glands. So they're ca categorized according to their sebaceous component, so they're called nevus sebaceous. You could have an acne nevus, which has mostly uh, dilated pilosebaceous units. That would be a nevus comedonicus. And you can have an apocrine or an ecrine nevus in a similar way, although those are much less common. Alfred Blaschko was a German doctor and physiologist um, in the late 18 and early 1900s. He was kind of an anal guy and, and he collected these cases of epidermal nevi and he would meticulously draw the distribution of these epidermal nevi onto porcelain dolls. He presented uh, all of these drawings at a national meeting in the early 1900s and ever since then they've been called the Lines of Blaschko. And we recognize these lines in dermatology as the dorsoventral migratory patterns of the neuroectoderm. Um, they don't follow any other vascular or neural uh, distribution, but really uh, form and give you a visual idea of the formation of the ectoderm itself. So Blaschko's lines are the cutaneous expression of genomic mosaicism. So this patient is a mosaic. The the DNA, the genetic component of that epidermal nevus is different than the normal surrounding skin. So there's a post-zygotic mutation, all of the daughter cells carry it, and you can watch basically the way the skin cells traveled and migrated during embryogenesis and they're represented by that epidermal nevus. The normal surrounding skin has normal DNA. So here's uh, another scalp lesion, uh, which we're, most of us are probably familiar with, a yellowish waxy plaque, uh, in this case behind the ear. This is a nevus sebaceous. Uh, they're relatively common. I consider them as in the same rubric with epidermal nevus, as I mentioned before. These just have more sebaceous, uh, predominantly sebaceous components. We call it nevus sebaceous. Uh, they're almost always present at birth. Uh, sometimes they're, they're noticed a little bit later. Uh, they tend to have a salmon or yellow-orange color. They tend to be flat uh, during the newborn period and thicken up uh, during uh, adolescence and sometimes can form small tumors within. Uh, most are on the head and neck. Um, Two-thirds on the scalp, one-third on the face. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, they can form neoplasms within them. Here's another uh, baby with a nevus sebaceous on the scalp, and uh, they're referred, and basically they want to know what it is and what we need to do about it. Um, in, in the past, we've recommended uh, excision of these, of these nevus sebaceous because we're worried about 
basal cell carcinoma. And um, so I just want to go through that a little bit because uh, I think it's an important management uh, conversation that comes up quite frequently. Uh, the literature, um, until about five years ago, um, basically told us that nevus sebaceous had about a 15% chance of developing into basal cell carcinoma. There have been at least five retrospective studies now, I have two of them on this slide, where they looked at thousands of nevus sebaceous and uh, looked at their histopathology. And what we now realize is that the vast majority of the tumors that arise in nevus sebaceous are benign. So mostly trichoblastoma, about 5%. Uh, I think a lot of these trichoblastomas were mischaracterized as basal cell carcinoma by pathologists in the 1970s and 1980s. Um, other benign tumors that can form are syringocystadenoma papilliferum and tricholoma, as well as sebacioma. So um, you do not need to do prophylactic excision of nevus sebaceous. Uh, certainly during childhood, there's really very little if no risk of forming tumors within them. If, they, if you notice a little bump or growth during adolescence, I would just recommend biopsying that. You can just do a little shave. You know, if you're a 15-year-old that maybe has a new growth, make sure it's not skin cancer and reassure the family. Um, so you don't need to remove these because you're going to try to prevent basal cell carcinoma. Um, you may want to remove them, or the family may want to remove them for cosmetic reasons. That's a totally different conversation, and I just think it's really important to be clear about what you're doing. You're doing it for cosmetic reasons because they don't like how it looks, not because we're worried about the biologic behavior. So moving down to the neck, um, this young man... Uh, has a cyst on his anterior neck and it moves when he swallows and sticks out his tongue. Uh, here's another patient I saw just before I came uh, to this meeting um, in, uh, in my clinic in uh, Northern California. She had had um, surgery, as you can see, there's a scar above this as a child for a cyst on her midline neck and now it's recurred. So um, there's a, a really nice uh, review article in Bologna. Um, Joe Gerizzo was one of the authors. And it sort of uh, outlines where some of these congenital cysts uh, occur on the head and neck, and I find it to be very useful. The reference is in that little flash drive that, that, that everyone has, so I'd probably just go download that and, and print it out, because I, I find it very useful to, to keep track of these things. So among our midline choices in the neck, we have thyroglossal cysts, and that's what these are. Um, the remnants of the embryonic thyroglossal duct, uh, sometimes they don't regress completely, and they can really occur anywhere from the base of the tongue to the thyroid. Often they'll move when swallowing or sticking out your tongue because they're attached to the hyoid bone. Um, and they may disappear acutely when they're infected or rupture. Uh, they require excision. They are associated with thyroid cancer. I sent all of these to ENT. Um, and you want to get a TSH sometimes uh, that will, will tell you something. There could be ectopic thyroid there as well. Um, our next one is this young man here with a cyst in front of his ear. Uh, going back to our uh, Bologna drawing, um, we've got a branchial cleft cyst. And uh, the first branchial cleft or arch, less common, so you can have preauricular cysts that aren't in involved with the branchial cleft, uh, but some that are. Um, 
The second arch cysts are more common, and they can really occur anywhere along the mandible or the, the uh, anterior uh, neck. Here's a patient I saw a couple years ago with just a big pit or hole in her neck, um, and she had a branchial cleft cyst of the second arch. You can see that it matches this diagram quite nicely. So again, I would, I would send her to ENT rather than excise it myself because um, I'm not sure what's in there. I, I don't want to go poking around in someone's neck if I don't know if there's uh, a duct or what it's attached to underneath. Um, so uh, you can also see in the same location an accessory tragus or cartilaginous rest. Um, normally we're used to seeing accessory tragi you know, near the tragus or anti-tragus or on the ear. Uh, you can really see them anywhere along the mandibular line. Um, don't shave these off uh, because you'll, you're likely to leave expo exposed cartilage. You should punch these out so you can get the cartilaginous stock. If you leave exposed cartilage, you're going to have a setup for just a chronic inflammatory process. So I would punch these out, make sure you can get uh, the root of the cartilage out and suture the skin. Here's another cartilaginous rest or um, uh, right here in the same uh, mandibular line, just a little bit lower down. You don't, you don't think about that necessarily in that location, uh, but they can occur all the way down close to the mouth. Again, that matches our drawing quite nicely. Moving down to the central upper chest, um, we've we've got a bronchogenic cyst, and that can be midline or lateral. Um, they uh, are commonly in the suprasternal notch. They can be congenital. Um, well, they are congenital, but sometimes they're not noticed right at birth. Um, and they're not usually associated with underlying structures, so they're not usually attached to the main bronchus. Uh, they can uh, become infected, and um, I would recommend excision of those as well. Here's an, another example. And here's one that uh, became infected. Uh, coming back to the scalp here, here's another example of a yellow nodule on the scalp. Uh, this is a juvenile xanthogranuloma. Most people would probably recognize this. Uh, they're benign, self-resolving, non-Langerhans cell histiocytosis. Um, usually solitary, but they can be multiple. Um, and usually we see them in early infancy and childhood. Occasionally, you'll have a congenital JXG. They're uncommon. Um, and you don't really need to do anything about these. They resolve on their own, although they take five or ten years to go away. Um, here's uh, a one-year-old with multiple JXGs on her face. This is a little bit of a different deal than the solitary one. Here's another patient with multiple JXGs on her trunk. And uh, if you have more than two or three uh, they have been associated with JXG in the eye, which sometimes can cause complications. So I'll, I'll send these patients to the ophthalmologist for an eye exam just to make sure there's not a JXG in the eye. Um, beware of the triple association between NF1 and JXG. Uh, there's uh, a paper that described a greatly increased risk of juvenile uh, myeloid leukemia 
in patients with neurofibromatosis and JXGs. Interestingly, this has become a little bit of a controversial topic in the pediatric derm community because there was another paper published in the last couple years that looked at about 20 cases retrospectively and didn't see any uh, leukemia. But that's out there in, in the literature as an increased risk, so just be aware of that. I'd probably uh, at least get a CBC on those patients and consider just referring them to a hematologist uh, for an evaluation. Okay. So um, sticking with the neck here, we've got mastocytosis. That's another common uh, lump and bump that we see. Uh, sometimes they can be very subtle. They're basically a, a result of accumulation of mast cells in the skin, and they're often present in infancy, uh, can be present since birth. Uh, the key really to diagnosing a subtle mastocytoma is the quality of the texture of the skin. There's a port-orange quality, orange peel-like quality uh, of the skin. They tend to urticate when you rub them. Um, due to histamine release, so each of these mast cells have a little packet of histamine. If they get inflamed or stimulated by, you know, physical uh, rubbing, they will release the histamine, and you'll have a little wheel. Four variants of mastocytosis. Uh, there's the solitary mastocytoma, urticaria pigmentosa, diffuse cutaneous mastocytosis, and mast cell leukemia, which fortunately is very rare. The solitary mastocytoma is uh, the most common. When it blisters, it could be mistaken for bullous impetigo. Uh, and these, just like the JXGs, will resolve slowly over time. It takes five to 10 years. And their propensity to blister and become inflamed tends to get better after the first couple years. Um, you could do a zinc uh, and see mast cells or a skin biopsy to make the, the diagnosis if you're not sure. Um, and sometimes a potent topical steroid can uh, reduce the uh, tendency to blister. It doesn't get rid of them, though. So here's a really nice example of uh, mastocytoma illustrating that pot orange quality, that orange peel-like quality of the skin. It's nothing else that really looks like this. Um, and if you rub this, it'll puff up. Here's a, an inflamed mastocytosis that's been uh, stimulated enough to cause a blister. And a large mastocytosis on the hand. Urticaria pigmentosa, again, uh, a mastocytosis of infancy. In this case, we have multiple papules, red to yellowish brown. I'm sorry, macules. They can be papules as well. Um, and uh, occasionally you can have systemic uh, involvement. So um, this is an 18-month-old that was referred by their pediatrician for multiple brown macules. Were first noticed at age six months. No family history of neurofibromatosis. So at across the room glance, you know, you might think that these are cafe LA macules, um, but if you look carefully at the individual lesions. Uh, they're not flat, so they're not cafe LA macules. They're, they're slightly bumpy. Um, I don't know how well this projects to the back of the room, but um, that's got a port orange quality, and if you rub on it, it'll urticate, um, and that'll make the diagnosis um, of mastocytosis. So this is a baby with uh, urticaria pigmentosa. 
uh, just more just more involvement in the last case. And um, there's the back. Often there'll be a history of flushing or hives, pruritus, sometimes blisters. If you have diarrhea or cramping, there can be uh, mast cells in the gastrointestinal tract. Um, I have used oral chromalin as a mast cell stabilizer for these patients, and I would consider doing that. Uh, it's important to establish the diagnosis, take a good history. If they have a high burden of disease, you can order a serum tryptase, and that can help you monitor disease activity. Um, you can look for occult GI bleeding. And um, uh, for symptomatic cases and histamines, as I mentioned, oral chromalin, um, you could consider an EpiPen. I haven't had to do this before, though. And then the worst uh, scenario is diffuse cutaneous mastocytosis. Fortunately, this is very uncommon. Basically, a diffuse infiltration of the skin with sheets of mast cells. Um, the, the picture on the right, uh, this baby had been um, basically hospitalized since day of life two for what was thought to be overwhelming staph sepsis with all these blisters, then was thought to have an autoimmune blistering disease. Um, if you look at this skin carefully, you can just clinically be alerted to the fact that they have mastocytosis and not an autoimmune blistering disease or infection because there's a port-orange quality of that skin. Obviously, you would want to do a biopsy to, to uh, support that clinical impression, um, but you could even tell just by looking and, and feeling. So we have a handout that we give in our office, and again, this is on your flash drive um, of any and all of the mast cell stimulators that someone might encounter out in the real world. And um, it's just an important part of patient information and education to give them um, when, when you have a diagnosis of mastocytosis. For, for a solitary mastocytosis, probably not worth getting into uh, all of this, but occasionally it is. I've had patients who were treating their solitary mastocytosis, mastocytoma, uh, with bacitracin. And that's number two on the topical medication list on this handout, and that'll stimulate mast cells, and that was actually making the mastocytoma worse. It kept blistering. They, they thought they were treating an infection, uh, but they were just making the mastocytoma worse. So no polysporin. All right, so uh, just to orient you, we're at the lower back sacrum. This is about three centimeters above the anal verge, and what we have here is a sacral dimple. So why do we get a dimple? Um, the, well, the cutaneous ectoderm separates from the neuroectoderm, as I mentioned in the first couple uh, introductory slides, and sometimes that separation doesn't occur normally, so you have non-disjunction, and probably these deeper structures are pulling the surface ectoderm down, and that's what's creating your dimple. And uh, we sometimes worry about spinal dysraphism when we have a, 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 a dimple, and there are high, suspicious, high suspicion areas, uh, and these depend on location. So if you're over two and a half centimeters above the anal verge, you need to worry. So going back to our little guy here, we're at that last hot spot between number one and number five. So what are some other high suspicion 
uh, features, well, hypertrichosis, just like we saw with the hair collar sign and the aplasia cutis, if you have hypertrichosis around a dimple, uh, that's suspicious. If the dimple's especially large, you have a tag or a tail or a lipoma or aplasia cutis in that location, those would all be very worrisome for spinal dysphraphism. Now, commonly, we'll get a patient in for an evaluation of a dimple, but it'll be right in the gluteal cleft. A small dimple right in the gluteal cleft is really a normal variant, and you don't need to do anything else in terms of workup. What we really worry about is tethered cord syndrome. The conus uh, gets tethered, and eventually, as the child grows, that causes uh, neurological deficits, uh, and they're permanent. So this brings us to uh, a little bit of mythology. Um, we've all heard of the Greek god Pan. He was the god of the flocks and fields and hung, hangs out in pastures and woodlands. He's got the uh, body or, or, or torso and, and legs of a goat, but the upper body and head of a human. And he's often depicted with goat legs and a, and a tail. Um, and this is a fascinating article uh, in Neurology in 2004 that sort of uh, looks at this myth of, of, of the god Pan. I'm just going to share this with you a little bit. Um, first, the ancient Greek artists were very accurate at depicting animal tails. Um, Pan is consistently drawn with a tuft of hair without the bony parts as a goat's tail. See, this goat's tail goes up. All of the mammalian tails originate caudal to the sacrum. Uh, the sculpture on the top of Pan with his tail going down is very different from uh, the animal tail. And as you can see on the, on the left, the human tail and the sculpture of the tail look uh, identical. So let's go back to our little guy here. So this is exactly in this hot spot between number one and number five. So we would worry about um, occult spinal dysraphism and a tethered cord. So Pan probably had spinal dysraphism. He probably had a tethered cord. Probably was a normal kid. And as he uh, grew up and lost bowel and bladder function, he'd be smelly and wet. And he'd probably be socially isolated, couldn't live in town, had to go into the woods and, and live there. Probably drank a lot because he was depressed about his situation. And um, Eventually, as he got more and more affected, uh, the calves become thinner and result in toe walking, um, which you can see that foot looks just like the goat's foot here as toe walking. Um, so Pan probably was a real person who had a tail and uh, spinal dysraphism and a whole uh, myth grew up around him. So embryology is important and sometimes can be fun. The location of lumps and bumps aids in diagnosis and helps you figure out when you need to image and refer. Thank you.